I mentioned in my welcome, uh, today is the first Sunday of Advent, and if you're new to Christianity or new to church or even maybe new to more traditional forms of Christianity, that word Advent may be some, something of a mystery to you. Uh, but the word Advent simply means arrival. It's a Latin word. It means arrival, and particularly means the arrival of someone or something that changes life as we know it or changes the world. So uh, it would be proper to speak event of the automobile uh, or the advent of the smartphone, right? Something has changed the way that we uh, do life, changed the world as we know it. And of course, in the case of Christianity, we mean Advent as the arrival of someone, the arrival of a person who has changed the world forever, particularly Jesus. And so Advent is the special season of getting ready for the arrival of Jesus, the arrival of the Messiah, the arrival of the Son of God. Properly, right, it's not the Christmas season. Uh, Christmas is the one celebration. Christmas is the day. Um, but Advent is the season getting us ready for the day. And so what this means, uh, and maybe this is new to the way that we think about it, Advent actually works backwards and forwards, right? Uh, at the backwards working of Advent is the way we usually think about Advent. We remember uh, what Jesus did. We remember the birth of Jesus uh, and that's good, and we need to remember that. That's the backward working of Advent. But what I would like for you to think about as we work our way through these hymns of hope, as we, uh, as we go through this special sermon series, is the way that Advent also works forward. Not only do we remember the baby, right? Not only do we remember the first coming of Jesus, but Advent should also propel us to look forward to his second coming. Because the baby born in a barn becomes the king and judge who will bring things to their perfect end. And so, not a, so in Advent, we look backwards, uh, but we also look forwards. We look backwards to the first coming of Jesus, and we look forward to his second coming. So what we're going to do over the next four weeks is we're going to... There are four songs in the first two chapters of Luke. Uh, Luke's gospel is one of two gospels. Only Matthew and Luke give us any details about Jesus' birth and childhood. And Luke really gives us more. And there are four songs surrounding the birth of Jesus that we're going to look at over the next four weeks. And we're going to call these hymns of hope. And here's, here's the goal. All right, here's my goal for our time as we study these hymns of hope and as we sing our own hymns, as we light candles and ring bells, I want us to become a people who are looking for someone. Right? I want us, I want us to become people uh, not just who are glad that this season is here, though that is, that's right and good, and we, are, we rejoice uh, at the Christmas time, right? Whatever, whatever it is, whatever fond memories uh, may be for you at this particular time of the year, those, those are good. But I want us to also be a people whose hearts are aching in longing for a better world. That's what, that's what Advent promises. That's what Christmas promises. That's what Jesus' birth and life and death and resurrection promises hold out for us. is the hope of a, of a better world. So that's what I'm praying for. That we would be a people of longing and a people of gladness. 
uh, that God is breaking into human history. So in light of that, let's turn to the Gospel of Luke. Uh, Luke is the, the third book in the New Testament. If you don't have a Bible, uh, please grab one off of, the, uh, off of the rack in front of you there. Uh, this passage is going to be on page 856. There are four, uh, four writers in the New Testament tell us about the life of Jesus. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And their writings are properly called Gospels or Good News. Uh, and so we're going to be in the Gospel of Luke over the next few weeks uh, looking at these songs. Luke uh, chapter 1, verses 46 through 55. Let's give attention to God's holy word. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, because he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed, because he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembering his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray. God in heaven, would you give us the grace uh, of understanding? Lord, would you open our eyes, help us to see and to understand how Mary's song uh, can come from our own hearts. What Mary's song says to our hearts, what it says to our world, what it means about you. Lord, help us to have Mary's faith. To believe as Mary did, to trust you as Mary did, and to watch you work as Mary did. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I tweaked my outline just a little bit from what you see on the screen behind you. We're going to give you a little bit of background to this, but here's the main idea. Hope comes from seeing God at work in mercy and in might. Hope comes from seeing God at work in mercy and in might. So we're going to look at God at work in mercy. And then we're going to look at God at work in might, what that means for us. But to, to understand God's, uh, to understand Mary's song, we need to take a few steps back. We need, to, we need to get a little bit of background on Mary and what's happened so far in the Gospel of Luke. So... Uh, if you go back to Luke 1.31, you'll notice that Mary gets a rather unexpected visit. Now, if you're familiar with the Christmas story, this isn't unexpected to you. It's not a surprise to you, but I don't want to assume. Uh, I don't want to assume anything. I don't want to assume that you've heard this story. And so Mary gets a visit from an angel, right? She gets a, she gets a visit from a representative of heaven. And... 
That might, uh, that, that might seem a little normal. That might seem normal to you if you've heard the Christmas story, but it was not normal to Mary. Okay? Um, people didn't get visits from angels. And so uh, when an angel shows up at Mary's house and tells her a certain prophecy, she is absolutely terrified. Here's what the, here's what the angel tells her. You're going to have a baby. Now, here's what you need to know about Mary. She was a teenager. She was engaged, which was not uncommon in Mary's day. Uh, but she was a virgin. She had never known a man. So, if you are following the drift there, that's going to be a little impossible, right? Um, the angel tells Mary that she is going to have a baby and that her baby will be the Messiah that everyone has been waiting for. Like, 400 years has been waiting for. David's throne has been empty for 400 years and God's people have been waiting to hear from God for 400 years and he has been silent. And now an angel shows up and tells Mary that all of that is about to change and that the baby who will sit on David's throne and be the savior of God's people is going to come from her. As if that wasn't enough, right? So Mary responds, hopefully, uh, as many of you would, like, uh, Lord, um, as, as Mary says in the Greek, I've never known a man. How is this going to happen? I, I've never known a man. And the angel tells her uh, that the Holy Spirit will help her to conceive, that the Holy Spirit, the same Holy Spirit who at creation who is there hovering over the darkness, causing creation to give life, now will also hover over Mary and create life in her virgin womb. Uh, and as a result, this child's name will be Holy. He will be called the Son of God. And so Mary uh, receives this news and then the angel tells her of another miracle baby and another miracle mama. The angel tells her about her cousin Elizabeth. So if you want to back up even further in the Gospel of Luke, you will meet this elderly couple, Elizabeth and Zechariah. Zechariah is a high priest. We're going to hear his song next week. But Zechariah and Elizabeth are elderly. They are old. And they have not been able to have children. But an angel appears to Zechariah and says, all that is about to change. I've heard your prayers, and Elizabeth will have a child. You guys will have a child, the normal way this time, right? But it's still a miracle because they are advanced in age. And this child is going to get people ready for the coming of the Messiah. And so the angel tells Mary about her cousin Elizabeth, and Mary goes to visit her cousin Elizabeth. Uh, again, you can imagine the emotion, uh, all, of the, all of the different emotions and thoughts that are racing through Mary's mind at this point. So she, of course, makes this long trek dangerous for a single woman from Nazareth to the hill country of Judea to visit Elizabeth, to confirm this good word that God has spoken to her. And we're going to listen in on their interaction. If you look in chapter 1, verse 39... In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. Verse 41, when Elizabeth 
heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leapt in her womb. Now let's pause right there. The baby, so Elizabeth is about six months along at this point. Um, you know, when we had our first child, we had like the, the timer that tells you exactly what's happening with the child at this moment, like what it's grown, what, like, what's, what fruit it's the size of. And now that we've had three children, I completely forget all of those things. But at six months, right, um, Elizabeth is definitely showing and she's definitely feeling movement, okay? Now, here's, here's the beautiful thing about what hap- what, what's happening. This life in Elizabeth's womb recognizes the life, this six-month-old baby that's in Elizabeth, Elizabeth's womb recognizes the life that is beginning to form in Mary's womb and responds with joy. He moves. He moves in response to hearing Mary's voice. Now, John is going to be the last prophet of the Old Covenant, right? The Old Testament. He is the, he is the last person to get God's people ready for the Messiah. So what, so what you have happening here in Zechariah's living room is the meeting of the last voice of the old with the Lord of the new. And sparks fly. John responds to Jesus' presence. And he responds with joy. Here's, what, here's how Elizabeth says it. She exclaims, she's filled with the Holy Spirit. She exclaims with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. Why is it granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? See that? Elizabeth is an old woman, and she just declared that this baby, who is this, this, this miraculously conceived, this miraculously uh, conceived egg that is in Mary's womb, is her Lord, is her master, is her king. Elizabeth is humbled that Mary would walk through the door. And not because of who Mary is, but because of who Mary is carrying. The old is meeting the new. Behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leapt for joy. Blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And so, in response to that, in response to this meeting... Mary sings. Mary herself is filled with the Holy Spirit and she, she, she pens this song for us. And what we see in Mary's song is that, is that true joy comes out of an understanding of who God is. Now let's, let's just unpack Mary's song here a little bit. Verse 46, Mary says, My soul magnifies the Lord. The Latin word for this song in history has been the magnificat. And it comes from this word. My soul magnifies the Lord. You know what a magnifying glass does? It brings up, it brings out what is already there. It makes large. This word is where we get, to, this Greek word is where we get our word mega. Right? Uh, Mary's soul is making much 
of God because of what she has experienced. She magnifies the Lord. She is making large God's grace to her. How? My spirit rejoices in God my Savior. So, in your English Bible, these verses probably look different. They're set apart differently because they're poetry. Okay? And Hebrew poetry is parallel. So you'll notice that the word magnifies is parallel with rejoices. Mary magnifies the Lord by rejoicing. Right? So that, that teaches us something. That to glorify God, we must enjoy Him. We must rejoice in Him. We must be glad at what He's doing. My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior. Magnifies, rejoices. The word there is exulting. It's the same word that Elizabeth uses about the baby in her womb. So John, at six months old, and Mary at 16, are doing the same thing. They are responding to God's grace in the same way. They are jumping for joy. So here's what we learn just right here at the beginning. Praise to God must come from joy in God. Or to put it another way, true joy in God results in praise to God. You cannot rejoice without giving praise. And you cannot really praise God unless you are rejoicing in Him. Unless your joy is in Him, like Mary's is. Who is He? I mean, that's, that's the question that begs. Who then is God that He would produce such joy? Who then is God that He would provoke such praise? Notice, there's one word that's not paralleled. There's one word that... Is not paralleled, and this tells you what it is for Mary, who God is for Mary. My soul rejoices in God, my Savior. Now, to need a Savior means that you're missing something, right? It means that you are in need of something. Something about you falls short. If a person is drowning, it means that they cannot... Swim to safety. They no longer possess the ability. Something is wrong with them. They need someone to come and save them. Mary recognizes as she sings to God that something is wrong with her. She is not, as some have believed, sinless. Mary is not without sin. Mary, in fact, right here at the beginning, is acknowledging her sin. And so we could even learn from her this. That to truly enjoy and praise God means to truly see my own sin. It's to have a true estimation of who I am apart from Him. Mary is not without sin. She calls God her Savior. God's favor. Uh, His favor is not earned. It's freely given. And we're going to unpack this a little bit more. But she uses the word blessing. Uh, God All generations will call me blessed. Mary is acknowledging God God does not show uh, favor to Mary because of who she is. His mercy is free. It is freely given at His own disposal. Mary has not earned what God has given to her. 
God honors Mary with his son. He does not honor Mary with his son because she is sinless. He does not bless Mary even because of her humility. There's nothing about Mary that merits anything. She is, she's a nobody from nowhere. And that's not being mean, it's just saying the truth. Nazareth is nowhere. There's no highway, there's no interstate that goes to Nazareth. Mary is not a wealthy woman. She's, she, like most of the people in her village, probably was poor. She lived day to day. That was, that was life in the first century. And so, as a nobody from nowhere, she understands that God has shown favor to her. Just look at the way, look at her reasons she gives, right? Uh, verse 48 My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, because, verse 48, He has looked on the humble estate, literally the humiliation of His servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. One writer I came across put it this way. I couldn't put it any better than this, and so I'm just going to quote him. Mary's joy arises from a deep sense of her own unworthiness. Mary's joy comes out of a deep sense of her own unworthiness. That's what she means when she says, He has looked on the humiliation of His servant, of His slave. Mary's joy comes out of a deep sense of her own unworthiness and from the privilege of serving one whose love is as deep as it is unmerited. Mary's joy comes from the privilege of serving one whose love is as deep as it is unmerited. Behold, all generations will call me blessed. Usually when we talk about blessing, uh, at least in our, in our common language, we mean, we, t- we usually talk about material things, right? And not necessarily always in a bad way. This is, there's some good things about this. But we say, God has really blessed us this year. And, and we mean by that that God has really taken care of us. We have all that we need and more. That's, that's usually what we mean. Or we say, God's blessed me with some good friends. Or God's blessed me uh, with some good parents. Or God's blessed me with a, a good spouse. That's, and all of that is good. But when the Bible says blessed, and when Mary says blessed, it's not really so much about stuff or about relations. It's not, it's not about what we have. Uh, it's more about status. So it's not about stuff, it's about status. It's about the way that God views Mary. It means that God has shown favor to Mary. And because God has highly esteemed Mary... She therefore is blessed. And so this word in the Greek can mean happy. Uh, but again, that word happy for us falls kind of short. But, but the meaning of the word really is, is summed up in this. That to be favored by God is to be truly happy. That is what, that's what Mary is singing about. Mary knows herself. She knows who she is. She knows where she's from. She understands that she has done nothing to earn God's favor. And she knows God's favor. She knows who God is. And she responds with 
joy. She responds with praise. Mary has experienced God's mercy and she is moved to joy. And so that's really the first part of, of what we celebrate at Advent. That our hope first comes from seeing God at work in His mercy. That what we have, what, what, God, what God did at Christmas... And that's really what it is that we're celebrating, right? We're celebrating the fact that God stepped, literally, stepped into human history. The eternal God, when He broke out of Mary's womb, broke into human history and experience. I don't know if you've ever thought about it in that way. But that the, that the Lord, as He takes His first breaths of, of oxygen. He has come into the world to change human history forever. And He does so out of His sheer mercy. And we also see this, that Advent and hope are not only the celebration of God's work in mercy, but also the celebration of God's work in might. This is what the rest of Mary's song is about. Verse 50, His mercy is for those who fear Him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with His arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich He has sent away empty. Now we need to say right off the bat, these verses are not a celebration of poverty. Nor are they a demonization of wealth. Right? These verses, uh, these verses are not saying that God loves you more if you don't have enough food to eat. Nor are they saying that God loves you wealth. I mean, God, nor are they saying that God loves you less if you have lots of wealth. That is not the point that Mary is making here. Poverty in and of itself is not necessarily a blessing, nor is wealth in and of itself necessarily a curse. That would contradict the whole teaching of Scripture, and it would contradict this whole theme of mercy and grace that Mary has just been singing about. Poverty doesn't earn you God's favor, nor does wealth cause you to lose it. But... So, so what? So what is uh, what is going on here? What is uh, what is Mary saying? Mary is praising God for reversing the status quo. All right, I want you to think about think about the way that our world works. Who is it that usually who is it that usually comes out on top? It's the wealthy. It's those who have the power. Right. The motto the motto is an old one. Might makes right. If you have the sword, or if you have the pen, or if you have the money, then you make the rules. That's usually the way the world works. And you don't have to look far beyond the headlines right now at this cultural moment to see this being played out. Right? The, the conversation all over the headlines at the moment is how men use their power to behave badly. Men, use their, men using their power to take advantage of other people, of people under their power. That's, that's what our world is reacting against at the moment. And insofar as that is actually happening, 
then it then it lines up with the way uh, with the way that the, the Bible sees the world at work. Right? That is the status quo. People who have power typically use that power against others. Right? Uh, this is what what the text means when it says the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. Those who, those who think more of themselves, more highly than they ought. Uh, let's see how it, how it describes the proud here. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud. This is verse 51. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. So those who in their hearts think they are better than others. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones, right? So those, uh, those who use their position, whether that's a throne or an office or a status, those uh, who use their status or position to take advantage of others, Mary praises God for bringing them down. And the rich he has sent away empty. So those who have more than enough and yet do not give to those who do not. Those who, those who hoard their wealth to themselves. God stands against those people. In fact, he says it this way. Uh, James puts it this way, James 4, 6. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Jesus puts it this way in Luke's Gospel in chapter 14, verse 11. Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. And he who humbles himself will be exalted. And so this old motto of might makes right, what we see playing out in our headlines, we see right here that God works against that trend. The sword may be mighty. The pen may be mightier. But the cross is mightier still. Men behaving badly, or women behaving badly, do not ultimately make the rules. God does. And He shows in His blessing of Mary that He is coming to deal with that injustice. And so that's how Advent then is a celebration of God's work in might. It's not simply a celebration of God's mercy, but also a celebration of of God's judgment. That when God comes into the world, He takes the way the world is and He stands it on its head. He says, this is the way that you're used to things being. I'm going to take it and I'm going to turn it over. Because I am the king and they are not. Now, I want you to think about what this would have meant for Mary in her day. Okay? So, again, she's a nobody from a no place in a backwater region of the Roman Empire. Her country and her countrymen have not known freedom since 586 B.C. So, for 586 years. They have been under the thumb of one oppressor or another. And all of the promises of their Bible seem to not be coming true. In fact, it looks like all of the promises made in the Old Testament are kind of hollow. Because they are under the thumb of a foreign ruler who does not care. And so, what Mary sees in Elizabeth's belly... And in her own, and, and begins to as she begins to feel the unstirrings inside of her, is that God is coming to fix it. God is stepping in to this dark, fallen, unjust world, and He is going to make it right. Everything that is upside down about this fallen world, 
God is going to right side up. And he begins to do that with the birth of his son. And so we have hope because God works in might. So that's who the proud are. The proud are those who, who don't even consider God. Right, and that's why they're characterized as, as powerful and wealthy. Uh, because they have enough of their own resources that God is just... And, that, and this is why, so we say that the Bible doesn't demonize wealth. And yet, Jesus issues very strong warnings against wealth or, or with wealth. Because what wealth can cause you to do is trust in your own resources rather than God's. If the, if the bank account is full, if the retirement investments are doing just fine, then we have a tendency to not really trust God with anything. We can just trust ourselves. We don't need anything from Him. And that's why... That's, that's where pride begins uh, to take hold of our hearts is when, we, is when we think we're better off without God than we are with Him. Those are the people that God opposes. But who are the humble? Who is God for? If He is against the proud, who is He for? Well, He's for people like Mary. The humble are exemplified by Mary. So all that we've already said about her true. But here's how she goes on to explain him. His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. Fear, not in the sense of being afraid or not merely being afraid, but rather a life of reverence and respect motivated by God's undeserved kindness. So, like Mary... Knowing who we are and knowing who God is and responding to Him in reverence and awe. That's what it means to fear God. To respond to God in reverence and awe because of who He is. So, so it would be, this is really typified by this question, why me? That's what Mary's asking. Right? In this song, the, the question that underlies Mary's song is, is why me? Why would, why would God show me such favor? Why would God allow me to carry the Messiah? It's what Elizabeth asked when Mary walks through the door. Why me? Why would God bless me with getting to see what He's going to do, with an understanding of His unfolding plan? It's really the question every, every Christian, every person who has received God's grace ought to be asking. Why me? What is it about me? That's the question of the person who fears God. Why me? They are those who fear Him, and they are those who depend on Him. They are the hungry. Not merely physically hungry, but they are hungry to hear from Him. They are hungry to be fed by Him. That's why it's a beautiful promise that Mary sings of. He has filled the hungry with good things. They are those who don't rely on their, on their gifts and on their status to earn favors with Him. That's why she can say, He has exalted those of humble estate. And they are those who have waited for Him. We're going to 
hear more about this in Zechariah's song, but the end of Mary's song here. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, which he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring. We're going to really unpack all that when we get to Zechariah. But what God is doing in Mary is he is keeping a promise that he made over 1,500, 2,000 years. We don't really know. However... However many millennia before this moment, God made a promise to a man named Abraham. And he is beginning to make, to really bring that promise to fruition in Mary's virgin womb. And so, we rejoice at a God who works in mercy, and we rejoice at a, at a God who works in might. Mary sings because God is moving to redeem His people. Paul says it this way in Galatians, that at the right time, God sent forth His Son. At the right time, at just the right moment, we might be prone to ask God, why did you wait so long? And maybe that's what many in Mary's day were asking, Lord, how long? But Mary realizes that this is the right time. Because this is God's time. He has sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to rescue those under the law. That is, remember John's reaction in the womb. He leaps for joy because his Savior has come. May that be true of us as well this Christmas. Let's pray. God in heaven, we thank you for your word, Lord, and we pray that you would Work it in our hearts and work it in our minds and work it in our wills. Lord, that we would be a people of of deep joy. That we would look, uh, look beyond, have a holly jolly Christmas, and instead to, O come, O come, Emmanuel and ransom captive Israel that mourns in lonely exile here until the Son of God appears. And then we would say, Rejoice! Rejoice, O Israel! Rejoice, rejoice, O Israel! For God your King has come. He has come to ransom His captives and bring us home. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.